Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the very heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, with the lively Troy Eller English. Troy, how's summer going so far? Well, Dan, I will let you know in a month or two when I either have vegetables in my garden or not. I know. <laughs> I know. We, we've, been, we've been struggling, too. We shall see. We shall see. You never know. I'm in a constant battle with the squirrels. The squirrels? I have built cages to go around my vegetable plants to tr- attempt to keep them out. They, they... But between the squirrels and the rats, the neighborhood rats. <laughs> <laughs> Since it's summertime, we thought it would be a great podcast today because we're going to talk about automation, what it really is. Now, the first thing I thought of was the story about and I'm going to paraphrase here, is like when Walter Ruther was taking a tour of one of the Ford plants in Cleveland, I think in about the late 50s, uh, this is one of the first plants going full automation with the big crane-like arms doing the work that men used to. And the foreman or someone said to Ruther, these workers don't pay union dues, do they? Which Ruther replies, and they don't buy Ford cars either. So what was and is automation supposed to do then? Is, is it supposed to free up labor and leisure? This is... There is an idea that automation was to free up our time, to do away with the ideas of manual labor, what our future will be, a kind of a utopia where workers will be free from work to pursue other ideals for a better society. Automation, the idea, was to help with efficiency, cut costs, and do so much more to help our productivity. Well, we talked with Dr. Jason Resenkoff, who is a core lecturer in the history department at Columbia University, who has written the book Labor's End, How the Promise of Automation Degraded Work. And we find out that, well, this well-written, well-researched book is that this idea of freedom was and is a myth, and that what we thought of would be a blessing with automation was a curse. And we experienced from the factories to the docks to the offices that work sped up and work intensified. The basic idea of the book is the automation is not an actual thing that happens in the workplace, but an ideological change in the means of production. What I found interesting was what happened in the white-collar world. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, Computer companies were pushing the idea that if you have more computers in the company, you will need less employees. But the opposite was true. You needed more to input the information. And of course, it was mostly women who were hired to do this work. And it continued to grow to a point where one out of every four women in the workforce was actually a clerical worker. So in like 1958, you had about 67% of women were clerical workers. And 20 years later, it was up 10%, more than 10%. Now, with automation, the idea was to simplify, to do the work for you. But again, even in the office buildings, work increased, more employees were hired. It was a myth. Think about every aspect of our lives today that is revolving around automation. From what we do at work, grocery shopping, self-checkout tellers, that's the shift of work. You used to have people employed to do that. Now you're doing the work, people. You do not work for Kroger. Think about Amazon and how that company is automated to deliver for your leisure. So Dr. Jason Resenkoff's Labor's End, How the Promise of Automation Degraded Work, can be your summer reading. So sit back and enjoy a wild interview that covers a lot.
Hey, Jason, thanks for joining us on Tales from the Ruther. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, this is a blast. This is a blast. As we were talking earlier, I really enjoyed reading your book. It was a hoot, to tell you the truth, and opened my eyes to a lot of different things. But first, why don't we cover the basis? Basically, give us clarity of what automation really is. Yeah. So I would say this is what the, the main thrust of the book is about. So, I mean, in short, what it is, automation is not a specific technology or a method of production. Rather, it's what you could call an ideology, or if you want, like a story or an argument about the nature of technological change. So the first thing to know about it is that the word is, is a pretty recent vintage, right? The word is coined in the late 1940s, right after World War II, first by the Ford Motor Company, and then by this business consultant at a Harvard Business School. I imagine we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but the main thrust of the idea of automation is an argument about the value of human labor in industrial society. So in the immediate post-war period, there was a glut of power that kind of descended on the United States of America, political power, like imperial power for sure, but also economic power. It was the industrial powerhouse to survive the war. And the argument of automation was that all technological progress tends towards the abolition of human labor, which is to say that human labor is becoming industrial, industrially obsolete. Uh, and I think the main contention of my book is that, first of all, examples where automation were taking place, where workers and uh, and executives you know, in business were saying, this is automation. I think I go and I show like, look, human beings are definitely still working there. And often it's not really the uh, abolition of labor, but really the speed up of human labor. I would argue that today, often when the word automation is used, it obscures the value of human labor that is actually that still exists rather than explains its mechanical abolition. That's the first thing that it, it, it does. And then the second thing is that it tells a big history, a big story about the history of human civilization, that every technological change that takes place must inevitably tend towards the um, eviction of human labor from society. And that, strictly speaking, just isn't true. That's just not the case, it would seem. So I guess to sum it up, you know, I'm going on and on here, but uh, automation is uh, an ideology, not a technology. That, that's, that's exactly what I got from your book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. Um, so, so we're talking about automation as an ideology. So, explain then what was happening in the factories, the, the, the docks, and other private industry at this time in the forties and fifties. Yeah, for sure. So, the, I got into this project because you know I, I started in the around twenty fourteen. It's been a while, I suppose. And really beginning in the mid-teens, there was more and more talk I was noticing uh, about automation. Like, usually it's about computers and AI in the 20-teens. And I'm a labor historian, so I was like, let me go back into the record. Where does this word come from? I was sort of taking it for granted as one would, that automation simply means the you know, replacement of human labor with some mechanism. Uh, and the more I look back in like the 1950s and the 1960s, I noticed two things. The first is that the word automation was everywhere. It's, it was much more prevalent in their like national public discourse. By there, I mean people of the past, especially in the United States, than it is with us today. Even though we talk about it a lot, it was everywhere. You know, John F. Kennedy is talking about it. You have you know heads of unions like Walter Ruther talking about it. Ray Bradbury's short stories are talking about it. It's like, and then you have radical feminists, black power activists. Everyone seems to need to, you know, and explain why automation is happening. So that's the first thing. It was everywhere. 
And the second thing is like, no one could agree as to what it was. And that was like a red flag, if ever there was one. You know, the guy who coins the word, well, he doesn't, he, he reinvents it. You can say he really makes it popular. This guy named John Diebold. He himself, he wrote a book, the book on automation that came out in 1952 called Automation. And he said, like, I don't know what this word means exactly. I'm like, and I remember finding that quite remarkable because I'm like, you coined it. You don't know what it means. You don't know what it's referring to. <laughs> so the controversy around it indicated to me that something else was going on. That it wasn't really um, a dispassionate description of engineering or techniques that were in the world of ideas. And so in the 1950s and 60s, I would argue, and if I'm straying too far from your question, Dan, you just like reel me back in. You know, I'm on my second cup of coffee today. So I'm, 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 I'm in the stratosphere already. But uh, I would argue it's actually when the word automation becomes common parlance in the late 1940s and early 1950s, another word is becoming important at that time too. And that's the word technology. It's slightly older, but that's when that word becomes popular. But there was a sense in the United States of America outside of just business, but I think among many people who had seen the United States win the Second World War because of its industrial capacity, that uh, human beings had entered into a new age, a new era was dawning, and there was a new like, technological era and they also were sensing a, a, that technology was beginning to really intervene in many normal, intimate uh, aspects of everyday life. And in this kind of, as this is taking place, you have more and more people across the industrialized world, but definitely in the United States specifically, wondering what that meant for their future, and specifically the future of work. They had just come out of the Great Depression, and in the Great Depression, the main description of how it had happened at the time was that the economy had matured which is mm -hmm. like capitalism had reached its limit. You know, there was all the factories that needed to be made were made. Everyone who needed to buy a Model T had, had, had bought a Model T. And so all that was left was to retrench, you know, to share the work more broadly. This is it. This is what an industrial economy looks like. But then after World War II, it seemed like, oh, capitalism's got another bite at the apple. Maybe we can have infinite growth forever. And all of these impressive technologies seem to have come all at once, one on the heels of another. So like... Um, Jet engines, computers, and nuclear bombs, antibiotics were becoming popular. It was really quite impressive. And someone living at the time would have thought they really had entered into a new epoch in human history, which explains why so many people were so breathless when talking about automation, because it seemed to fulfill us what I would call, well, not me alone, but what one might call a semantic need. They seemed to feel that something had changed about their lives and they needed a word to describe it. And so that's why even though one manager here coins a word, another manager there coins a word, is why it takes on, because it was actually satisfying a need that people felt, which was that they felt that if this is a new industrial society, maybe what people have to do to live in it, the kind of work that they have to do might change. And so. so in practicality, taking this word automation and making it something that you can see, touch, feel, yeah, the factories were changing. Oh, not as much as you might think. That's the, that's the short of it. So. Where the word automation is first coined in the Ford Motor Company, it's really around 46, 47. And the guy who does it is some vice president of production named D.S. Harder or Delmar Harder. And they, and in the you know, reconversion from wartime production to civilian production, because during the war, there had been a, um, a, uh, a, a limit. It actually, you, know, been, you weren't allowed to make cars for consumer consumption. But now they're switching back to a booming consumer uh, economy. And they need to install new machines. And in doing so, they, the Ford Motor Company begins installing something called a transfer machine. Uh, a transfer machine is like a, a mach an automatic machine tool. So machine tools are something like a lathe or a drill press. They're a mix between like an entirely mechanistic automatic machine 
and usually something that use, involves a great deal of craft, right? Lathes or, 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 or like die casting, these things. And what transfer machines did was that they put together automatic machine tools and they linked them in a transfer line. So specifically for one aspect of production, this was the, um, the machining of engines. So after you get a, an engine is usually cast as a, a rough engine block. And then you have to do all kinds of things to an engine block to turn it into an engine. Mainly you have to like smooth it over. You have to drill new holes into it. It's very labor intensive. And what the Ford Motor Company was experimenting in, and they weren't actually the first ones really to do this, but they're the first ones to make it big, which is to get these automatic machine tools. And mainly they would do a lot of drilling and they could put a rough engine cast at the beginning of this transfer line. And then it would go, it would snake through all of these transfer machines and they would do all the extra drilling, I guess a little, not really lathing on a machine, on, on an engine block, but you do a lot of the extra drilling and, you know, manipulating, you turn it up and down and it would get to the end of the line. And in theory, it would then be ready to be installed into a car, you know, and all the parts could be put into the engine block that's now ready. So here's the thing. The transfer machine was an old machine in the 1940s. The first transfer machines were used at the Waltham Watch Company in the 1880s. And people have been experimenting with transfer machines since the 1920s. And it's true, you could take many people off the line of an engine block when you had to, you know, you brought in these very expensive transfer machines. But what it ended up doing was actually speeding up much of the process. So you could fire a few workers or move them to other parts of the factory. But what workers themselves said, beginning in the late 1940s, they actually, we seem to be working much harder than we were before because now the rest of the factory needs to keep up with this sped up engine line because they made that go faster. But that's just like the first thing that got the word automation attached to it. Very quickly, by like 1952-ish, people are using the word automation to describe almost any kind of material change that takes place anywhere in a factory. So what I found when I was looking through the records, specifically at the Ruther Library, was that you know someone would bring in a new cutting machine. They say automations come again, or you know they would just move people to a new part of the line. Like, well, here's that more of that automation, or more importantly, and this is the key. The Ford Motor Company would just speed up an old process that hadn't really materially changed. And people would say, like, well, this new automation pace is really, you know, put, keep, keeping us down. And I think that's actually the key thing, you know, what's going on in the factory. What we really changed wasn't the bringing in of a few new machines in the 40s. What changed was that after World War II, the Ford Motor Company had a union on its shop floor. That was new. And the Ford Motor Company was famous for being anti-union in a very anti-union industry, mind you. No automobile company was happy to bring in a union. Look at the Flint sit-down strike of 36-37, right? And so now the Ford Motor Company has a union on its hands, which it despises. And more to the point, after World War II, they couldn't be openly anti-union anymore. Something had changed, which is like even unions were considered like a pillar of humane civilization. And so they had to find some other way of saying we don't want a union. And so at the time that they're coining the word automation to describe these transfer machines, they're also in the midst of a speed-up strike. This is like the big strike uh, of the late 1940s at Ford, but it also had repercussions for the whole auto industry, which was that Ford wanted to be able to run the line as fast as they wanted, when they wanted, and the union did not want that. And it was at this precise moment that you have an automation department being invented in the Ford Motor Company and them arguing, actually, it turns out that perhaps human labor is no longer even technically necessary. You know, and that all these things you're calling speed up would seem to be just technological progress. You know, that thing we all love now after World War II. And so in the midst of the speed up strike, you know, Ford has found a very clever way of 
really uh, feeding in and feeding off of the technological enthusiasm of the era to persuade people that when they're being anti-union, they're not really being anti-union, they're being pro-progress. And that's actually, that would be the, the hallmark of the automation discourse throughout actually the second half of the 20th century, but definitely in the middle of the 20th century. So that's just the Ford Motor Company. We can talk about material changes in other places, but it's going to be a constellation of different kinds of machines and techniques, some of which do make things more automatic sometimes, but most of which absolutely do not. And some of them, like in computers, for example, when computers are brought into offices, actually require more workers than before. And they're calling it automation, you know, as they're hiring more people than ever before. Like, look at this automation go. It's very strange, very strange stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in the white collar world, you had to fill the computers with all the information. So you needed more people to fill that in at a speed up, a degradation of their actual worth as well. And so it was it was it was countrywide. All right. So you mentioned this guy, uh, Joe Dibel, right? John Diebel. All right. Who is this guy? How come I've never heard of him? And why is he like the the godfather of automation in a way, you know? I know, I know. The New York Times called him uh, in the 60s. It's evangelist. Uh, (laughs) When I went into his papers at uh, Harvard Business School, uh, I I was told by the archivist, I was the first one ever to actually call up this guy's papers. I don't think I was the only one, though. I think since then, some people have taken a look. But John Diebold wrote this book, this book in 1952 called Automation. And Really, what he was, and I'll describe his biography because I find him very interesting. Yeah, as in, you know, even though I'm a labor historian, this is this business guy. He's a quirky character, I suppose. But um, his historical importance is that he was a booster, a technology booster. You know, he went into started his own private consulting company, and his job was pretty much to go into different private businesses, governments, even actually did some work for the Communication Workers of America, which was wild. You know, a union called him in at one point. And to advise them on what kind of machines they would need to buy to keep up with, you know, changing times. But part of the way he drummed up business was by arguing that human beings had entered into a new historical era. So he publishes this book out of Harvard Business School when he graduates in like 51 or 53, no, 52. And he publishes this book called Automation. And it's just, it's a surprise bestseller. Everyone is reading it. But like a lot of people are reading it who you wouldn't think would read a book like this, like the philosopher Hannah Arendt quotes it a great deal. I'm like, what? What were you doing reading this book? But it, it was uh, it was ubiquitous. Everyone was bumping into it, and he was always getting a little quote there in the New York Times or the Washington Post. You know, when they needed to get someone's blurb on what automation was, they would call him. Um, when in 1955, uh, the Senate held hearings on the nature of unemployment and technological change, he was their first witness because you know this man wrote the book. Uh, but I think what his main like historical importance besides that, like he, he makes this word popular, is that he also was an early booster of the electronic digital computer. And he was mm. very influential in that regard. He was a, one of the, there were many people who were trying it, but he was one of the most successful to convince private businesses that you could make money off of this newfangled and very strange machine called an electronic digital computer, because they were not very practical instruments in the 1950s at all. No. You no. had to convince someone they could do it. But I think the important thing is like, well, John Diebel did all this stuff and he was like, you know, glad handing. Yeah, I mean, he had friends in the Kennedy administration. He met Ayn Rand. He, people visited him. George Schultz would be Ronald Reagan's secretary of state, like knew him. They were, they were buddies. So he's like, he's a deal maker. But more important than him alone as this individual is that like in 1953, after his book had come out and it was very popular, He tried to create a magazine called Automation. It'd be his trade journal on it. 
And I found this in the archive. His lawyers were like, uh, we can't call it automation. At least we could call the magazine automation, but we wouldn't be able to trademark it because the word has already become common parlance. It's like it's, it was no longer his word anymore, even though he thought he had coined it. He didn't realize that DF, DS Harder had coined it at Port. <laughs> He learned that just as a book is going to publication, but nevertheless, that this thing that he thought he could own very quickly ran away from him and he couldn't own it anymore, which is, I think, one of the reasons in the 1960s, he's like, I don't know what this word even means anymore, because even though I thought I coined it, it was obviously fulfilling some need that other people had. And it just became a, a, a commonplace rather than his particular piece of property. So he continued to flog it and make his career, but it went beyond him for sure. Uh, yeah, well, all automation has completely gone beyond all of us. <laughs> and um, it, it's interesting that even he was affected by automation. His work was taken away from him. Like the workers in white collar and in the factories, their work was basically through automation taken away from them in a way. Um, so the, what threw me on the last part of your book was how you started talking about not only you've been talking about the speed up, the degradation of work and the strikes because uh, workers were just like overwhelmed, you know, they couldn't handle it. And so all of a sudden you start talking about, which is great, the value of work through automation and from people like uh, Boggs and other people talking about, wow, this is where we're going. Who are we? Now in this automation world, can you explain to our audience what, what what you were talking about? Because this we're still talking about. It. My wife talks about it all the time. Is like, what's my value? You know, what am I doing? You know. Well, you know, for me, what the question came, comes down to, and this is where the workout very interesting for me because it's it, it's important to say like, what is a human being doing? And here's this discourse that's obscuring the value of the labor that they continue to need to do, right? I mean, one of the values of automation for a manager or an employer or a business is that you get people to work for you, but you don't have to acknowledge that they're working for you. So you don't have to pay them. Right? That, that's basically the gist of it. Um, but the deeper question is, of course, why did so many people get excited by the idea after 1945 that they could be free from work? And this might seem obvious to a lot of people. Like, if, I mean, sometimes I ask my students, this, like, if you had a billion dollars, what would you do? And usually like, they say, well, a year in Bali or something, you know, like, but then, well, I would want to do something useful, right? I'd want to do something rewarding. And it would mean, another way of saying it is I want to do something that was socially necessary. Right? I want to contribute or be a member of my community somehow. I want to matter in some way. Now, no one wants to go work for someone else for a pittance and have no time off and be exhausted and produce something that doesn't do any good in the world. I don't think anyone really wants that. But people, you know, from what I gather, there's a sense that people want to matter. They don't want to have really trivial lives, which is to say they want to answer some kind of social necessity. And so the thing that I found interesting about all this is that if you're a labor historian, something that one might note is pretty much for most of U.S. history, up until the middle of the 20th century, most workers did not define being free as being free from needing to work at all. They ran, rather, usually there was some idea of needing workers' control. They wanted to control the conditions of their lives. So whether it's something like yeoman democracy and Thomas Jefferson, where it's like you want to own your own farm. I mean, you know, masters of small worlds here. You want to own your own farm and be you know, a white patriarch. You want to have women and children and slaves working for you and all these things. It can be really gross. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't this idea like I want to escape the condition of needing to do some labor. Rather, it was independence of some kind. And... Uh, even someone, I mean, you have in like you know, 1865, Garrison Frazier talking to, you know, 
William Tecumseh Sherman saying you know, he had been he had been an enslaved person. He'd been liberated for 20 years. And then they asked him, what do you define as freedom? He said, I want to be a farmer. I want to farm for myself and control the product of my own labor. And even when you get into like the industrial, true industrialism at the end of the 19th into the early 20th century, and you have the, the rise of the shorter hours movement in earnest, even then you didn't have workers saying like, we never want to go work again. We want limited hours, you know, eight hours work, eight hours rest and eight hours for what we will. And even better, you know, maybe six hours work and then add to that two hours somewhere else. But not this idea that only basically um, aristocrats are free. That would have been strange in a producerist republic for sure. And that was actually the only people who really argued that in earnest in the United States, besides like New England Brahmins maybe, uh, was the, the slave power, the antebellum era. You had these, you know, people who styled themselves new Aristotles and things saying, you know, uh, a true gentleman of the South would never lift his hand and work. But that's considered a little, to be frank, gross. You know, it's, it's kind of yeah, a gross thing. Yeah. Someone else will work for me because I'm too important or my hands are too soft or something like that. No, I shouldn't be asked to labor. And so what I found remarkable at the automation discourse is that when it arises in the post-war era, all of a sudden the new idea of freedom is not, you know, workers will control their own labor. I mean, that's what the sit-down strikes of 36 and 37 were about, right? They're literally sitting down and saying, we own our jobs, you know? And so we don't need to have a socialist revolution necessarily. You can own the factory, we own our jobs, and then we'll, you know, that will be a fair way of organizing society. I'm not sure. I, I think I might go a little farther left than that myself, but all right, that's, that's one way of reconciling the whole issue. But then in the post-war period, you have people from across the political spectrum and from within the labor movement more strikingly saying, no, once we're free of needing to work, once we can all be gentlemen and gentlewomen, once we can all be aristocrats, then finally we'll have a free society. So all we need to do now is inaugurate a race of natural slaves and these slaves will be called robots. It will be okay. We can reconcile it with democracy. And I think my, the argument I come up, I come up with is like, okay, I'm not one to say that, tell people that they need to work to be happy. I think that that can be a really crummy argument actually, but rather there's a, a, a very big concession that we're making. That's going to be our definition of freedom, that you have to be free from work, but then social necessity will need to be fulfilled somehow. It means that all the jobs that continue to exist will have to be fit only for enslaved beings. And okay, if it's a robot, that's all right, but what if the robots don't show up? And that's actually exactly what happened. The robots never showed up. So that work that still needed to be around, that was no longer fit for a pre-person, even theoretically, now had to be done by a real person. And so the way I would put it is like this. Can we imagine a way where everyone could be free today without some glut of future magical superpowers, right? Where we just conjure a bunch of special robots who do all our work for us. What would our society have to look like today, right now, if we decided everyone should actually be a liberated individual? And the conclusion is very simple that I, uh, I come to. I'm not even sure I say it in the book, actually, but many hands make light work. You know, if you share the work evenly, and more importantly, if you have some control over your life and you have to do the work, basically democracy. If you actually bring democracy to the workplace, it seems that you could actually reconcile work and freedom. And that had been the answer of the labor movement up until the 1930s. And, yeah. And, and isn't that, though, what the owners of the factories, the bosses in, the IB, in IBM are saying? We don't want democracy in the workplace because we right. still want to control it. Unions bring democracy to the workplace. How do we get rid of this democracy in the workplace? Because we don't want them to have the freedom to be able to have free thought. Right. So more automation, speed up, degrade the work. And who's usually doing the degrading work nowadays? Right. 
women, those are minorities and stuff like that. So it's a great idea, <laughs> but you still have to fight, you know, and it's, it's example is what happened in Lordstown. Right. Right. So why don't we talk about Lordstown? Because, you know, that sums up everything you're talking about, you know, and it's still on our conscious of what recently just happened there in Ohio. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, and now the, the added quirk of it that Lordstown Motors is that, you know, they're making these electric cars there and it's this whole financial boondoggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Lordstown uh, Motor Company. No, 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 that's a, that's a today. Uh, the Lordstown factory was a GM factory uh, and it, it opened in the 1960s. And it was meant to be like their flagship factory where they were making, among other cars, like the Vega. Um, I've never myself had the privilege of riding in a Vega. I've never seen them. Neither have I, but yeah. I would imagine being in the Midwest, maybe you'd see these people, you know, driving them around. Um, But old school, truly old school. It was meant to be the the answer to the the Japanese and European petite cars that were threatening the American market. Um, Because you wouldn't, you know. Uh, American car companies would try to make a small car and then, well, it's adding some features and it would just inevitably become a big car. But nevertheless, this was going to, you know, the American auto industry was under threat by the rising industrial powers uh, of mainly like Europe and also Japan was becoming a threat, uh, at least in theory. And this is also the beginning of uh, the crisis and profitability that would sort of end the golden years, quote unquote, of the post-war period that would bring in, you know, what we sometimes think of as the 1970s, right? Um, and all the things of the 1970s, hitting hard limits, environmental problems, well, not problems, but environmental consciousness, uh, oil crises, these kinds of things. Anyway, so the Lordstown factory is going to be the answer to this. They're going to make the new car to win back the American market. And they were going to do it with the latest technology, right? So they didn't have an old factory cluttered with old machines that they needed to use. They can invest entirely new capital in this thing. And, you know, the Lordstown strike that begins in the early 1970s, 71. It's been told over and over again, as it should be, because it really is like an excellent narrative for, even though it wasn't necessarily the most important strike of the era, as a story, it really captures a lot of what was going on at the time. So they make this factory, they put these new machines in them, several different kinds of machines. They have these robots called the Unimate. It's this white arm that did welding mainly and could maybe hold things and manipulate them. It would actually look very familiar to, I think. People today listening to the podcast, if they saw it, it looks like the arms that you usually see. You know, it's, it's the prototype for that in these factory settings. And then they used other systems as well, something called Alpaca, which was a, a computer system that was meant to monitor when things were moving down the line and, and you know, have possible ruptures in the line. And as well as another computer system that was to help management decide where to put workers when, to use them to their full you know, to get workers to work as hard as possible for as long as possible, right? So like, where do you, you're supposed to use some clever algorithm to do that. But the other thing that made Lord sound interesting is that most of his workers weren't quite young, like under 35, many of them under 30. And it was also a, from the get-go an integrated workforce. And this is like, you know, the late 1960s, early 1970s, we have these epic fights to integrate not just schools and not just, you know, civil society, but also workplaces. And so GM is trying to show, you know, that it's really right there at the bleeding edge of progressive society. We're making the new car with the new machines, with an integrated, young, hip workforce. And of course, you know, young is important because the youth culture was so important in the 1960s and 1970s, right? Don't trust anyone under 30, right? And all these things. And then what ends up happening is like GM is thinks it's poised to, you know, really just reap a windfall, both of publicity and money, and then the opposite happens. It's this huge explosion. They have a big strike, very 
uh, well-publicized strike on their hands. And so the question is, why does this happen? And numerous things go on, of course, but it's actually, it's very interesting from our perspective when people, you know, we want more good jobs in the United States. You know, for example, Donald Trump goes to Carrier and says, we're going to keep your good jobs here. But in the 1960s, here was a group of people, mainly young men, but not only young men, black and white, many veterans of Vietnam, who had, quote unquote, good jobs. They were very well paying for the era uh, and the area at the time. And yet they hated their jobs. They were furious. And because it, it wasn't the money, right? It wasn't just that. And it wasn't simply having a union, although they did have a very active union. It was a UAW union. Rather, the issue was that it was very oppressive. They were working incredibly hard. They were sped up by all these fantastic new machines that were called automation. The news called it automation. The workers called it automation. GM called it automation. So these workers were saying, we live in like a really steep hierarchy when we're at work. We have bosses yelling at us all the time, pushing us around. The conditions are pretty unsafe, actually. They're not hygienic and then they can be they're making people sick. And then finally, we're working way, way too hard. And that was the other innovation at Lordstown that GM brought in. It was called GMAT, or this was a, a subgroup within GM called General Motors Assembly Division. It mainly was in charge of their assembly factories, like one, one of some of them at Lordstown. And their whole shtick was that they were going to increase, decreasing profitability. They were going to get their profitability back by speeding up workers. And so GMAT took over the Lordstown factory and started driving workers very, very hard. And it was an anti-speed-up protest. That's what happened at Lordstown. But important to note, it didn't just happen at Lordstown. Lordstown was like the poster child for it, but it was happening across GMAD factories, GM factories, including where there were workers who weren't 25 years old. You had like 45-year-old workers saying, we haven't worked this. We've been working fast, but not this fast. They were also rebelling. The Norwood factory is the example people usually point to. And so here's an example of just like the pinnacle of automation actually being finally sort of publicly revealed as a speed up, not technological, not the latest in in technology, but rather just old school industrialism yet again, you know, Uh, a boss pushing a worker very hard. So what happened with the strike? What what, uh, what was the resolve? Well, it was very popular, the work, but the result was, to put it mildly, mixed. It was not a major victory. That said, there were some concessions that were won, but when you look at the actual concessions that were won by the workers compared to what they wanted, it, you could say it was like something of a, a mitigated failure because mm-hmm. what they wanted was liberation, which is the word, the watchword of the era, like the late 60s and the early 70s. And what they got was promises to make it safer. This line speed was slowed down a little bit. They did not get workers control. They right. didn't. Right. And so you, if you want to say, like, what are the long term results of it? Luckily, you know, I guess living in the early 21st century, we really get to see it. And I guess this is what you're pointing to, obviously, which is that, you know, the story of deindustrialization in the United States meant that a lot of jobs are sent to Mexico, they're sent to Asia, and that the factories that remain, you know, workers have to increasingly work harder to justify being able to keep their jobs because they actually, even with their unions, they don't own their jobs. And in the search for profitability, as I think this is an old story, obviously we all know it, bosses literally took factories apart piece by piece and sent them abroad, not where there were more robots, mind you, you know, not where there were better machines, but where there, were, there was cheaper labor. And finally, in 2018, GM shuttered Lordstown. 
And this was crazy to me. I mean, I remember reading it in the New York Times and forgive me, this might be a little too much information. I woke up in the morning and due to, as I always do, I pick up my phone and I read the news and I was like, what? I yeah. cannot believe this for two reasons. One, because it's such a, a famous factory, right? It was, it's almost like waving a, a big white flag for industrial America, like we're done. Uh, that's an overstatement, but that's sort of how it felt to me. And then secondly, because after the 2008 crisis, you know, Obama, President Obama at the time went there and said, we're going to save the auto industry. We're going to bail it out. And he said it at Lordstown because it's the poster child for industrial America at this point, especially for the automotive industry. And, you know, at the time when Obama did that, and again, I don't want to reveal maybe too, too much about my politics, on this podcast, although uh, why, why hide it? I remember thinking like, okay, the United States government through this huge bailout of GM pretty much just nationalized an automobile company, right? We, the, United States, the people of the United States bought GM and then just gave it back. I was like, why not just keep owning it? We can do it. You know, when, I don't know, when I've had trouble paying for rent in my apartment, the United States government never came in and said like, oh, here's your apartment. <laughs> hey, you know, that would, although, I, you know, they should, don't get me wrong, they should. But, you know, the United States spent billions of dollars to help GM survive the recession and GM never paid back all of the money even, right? I mean, you could say the US government still owns a big chunk of GM, although they make no claims on that ever. And so Barack Obama, he goes there and I think, you know, it's too big, GM was too big to fail. He wanted to save these workers' jobs. These are all the things he said. And then under the Trump presidency, GM shutters Lord Sound. They say it's not profitable enough and we're gonna, we're also close in factories in Canada. We're gonna ship these jobs outside the United States. You know, they just took all that money from the public and then didn't feel the need to pay it back. And so, and, but here's the point for our purposes. None of that was automation. None of that was automation. And even Steve Ratner, a character I'm not particularly fond of, kind of a, you know, he's one of, he's this big hedge fund guy who was Obama's auto, automotive czar during the recession and the bailout. Even he said in, a, in an op-ed for the New York Times, like, uh, I don't think this is, there's not any new machines that are making any of this happen. It's really merely a search for more profitability through cheaper labor. Which sums up kind of your book right there, you know? It, yeah. it does. I mean, it's, it's all about automation. Everybody's talking about automation. Everybody wants to have automation in their workplace, whether it's white collar, whether it's blue collar, pink collar, whatever. We're going to yeah. slap on a, a wristband on your, your wrist just to keep track of, your, of, of what you're doing. But it really is comes down to the human beings and making money and control, you know? Yeah, I mean, and if, you know, look, this is going to be a very petty example, considering everything we just talked about. So forgive me, you know, but I, after working on this project for some time, I can't help but see it everywhere. Um, but I don't know, maybe many of your listeners have gone into like a Walgreens or a CVS or even just a grocery store and they have like the automatic checkout area, right? And I, I kind of do prefer it sometimes. It, I don't know, maybe it's like because human interactions. Is if you're tired when you're shopping, you don't actually say, "Oh, thank you very much." Although it can also be very pleasant. But all right, and this is often like, pointed to as an example of automation, right? Like, look, you know, it's automatic. Except that actually, the human labor element has not changed at all, right? A human being is still scanning that item. It's just now the consumer who does it instead of like the clerk at the checkout counter. And the reason, even though this is a small example, I'm like, that's actually so typical. Of how this works, that the labor has been put off to someone else who usually is either paid less or in our case, not paid at all. And of course, it's not like Walgreens. It's like, oh, we're saving money on labor. So we're cutting our prices commensurately to save you money, right? And that gets put in their pocket. It's the whole reason that they do it. 
And so what's so interesting about automation is that as a kind of an ideology, as a discourse, it can cloud that. You might, a person might be literally doing the labor themselves, right? Checking their, themselves out where a human being used to do it and thinking like, oh man, it's amazing that no one is doing this anymore when they are doing it. Right. Um, and it happens, like, it actually happens very frequently, especially with this stuff that's meant to aid or be convenient for the consumer. It's often how it's built. But from the point of view of a, of a boss or an owner, it would look like no one is doing it because literally when they open up their books and they see how many people they have to pay to do it, it's like as if no one does it at all. And like, again, that's automation's real function to obscure the persistent value of human labor. And so absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I, I agree with you. Sometimes I do it, but most of the time I go in there and I say, I don't work for you. Right. <laughs> You're not paying me to do this. So I'm going to go up to, and I, I shop at a union grocery store. I go up to the union member to do the job that they're there for, you know? So even though I'm standing in line for 20, 30 minutes, you know, do it. But anyway, final question. This is the big question. We always love to ask all our researchers. Um, what collections did you use at the Ruther and how much did you enjoy them? But also where else did you do your research? Because this all ties into the archival world that other people is like, oh, I now want to go and look up this, this guy's stuff. Where, where, where is it? So. So I would say uh, at, at the Ruther, I spent like one big summer there in 2015, which was a very interesting time to be in Detroit. Um, uh, but the main collections that I looked at were the UAW's papers, which are massive, you know, and I, and I, and it's definitely, I was there for like the whole summer and it wasn't enough time. To go through just every all the UAW's collections, uh, and then as well the uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs papers as well. Those were really fascinating. They're, they're two hugely important activists in the city of Detroit and in the United States generally. Uh, actually, those uh, Grace Lee Boggs was still alive at the time. She had her hundredth birthday party that that summer. And yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, cool. Wow, I was like, I was like in her archive, and then I went to her birthday. Her birthday party was open to the public. I definitely did not yeah. get a personal invitation. Um, you know, I was like reading her papers like that afternoon and then later in the day. That's know, cool. That's very yeah, cool. Cool. And then actually the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the, I definitely spent a lot of time looking at those uh, records as well. I would say those are the three main ones that I looked at uh, when, at the Ruther. Although there was way more, you know, and I just had to, I just had to cut my losses. I couldn't, yeah, right. I couldn't spend two years there, unfortunately. Um, but because it's, I mean, the, the book is a, an intersection of labor history and intellectual history and also a little bit of history of capitalism. Uh, I couldn't do all my research at the Ruther. So I also went to the, the Tamament at, uh, in New York City. At N, that's NYU's labor history. I would say like, um, those are the, for me, those are the two main labor archives in the US. First, the Ruther, the Tamament, and then Cornell a little bit. Um, and then I spent some time at the National Archives in Washington, uh, which is, uh, that is like, like to just compare the experience of being in, in, when you go to the Ruther, it's like, it's usually very quiet. You can call up a ton of boxes at a time. Archivists are like really, usually really game and interested in what you're doing. And then you go to NARA too in College Park, Maryland, and it's just a factory, you know, you're just like, and the archivists are just exhausted and sad. And they're like, well, what do you want? And like calling up things is super hard. You have, it's like, it, like and it's like cross-listed in different numbers. It's, it's very strange. Although being in that room, I mean, the Walter and the Ruther, you can see those great murals, you know, of the like AFL-CIO. But at College Park, Maryland, it's a little like doing your research in the Starship Enterprise, which is cool. You know, you have it's like glass and metal. Uh, the other place where I did a lot of research actually was at Harvard. I went to the, the Schlesinger Library, but also the Harvard Business School's Library. Excellent Harvard. library. Yeah, they are. Cool. They, they are excellent, too. Yeah. 
Very cool. Jason, appreciate it. I loved reading Labor's End and you're always welcome back here at the Ruther Library. Oh, thank you. I, I, I will be there soon. Now that the pandemic is beginning to wind down, I have things to look up. So thank you so much for having me. Cool. Thank you so much. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Between the squirrels and the rats, the neighborhood rats. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Ours is the deer. Uh, We have two does. You're fancy over there. We are fancy. (laughs) Um, Brother and sister, they like to hop and check it out Mm -hmm. and just trample on things. How are two does, brothers? I'm sorry. Never mind. We have two... Two deer. Adolescent. Two adolescents. Adolescents. Dad died last year. Anyway, sorry. Let's get back to this. Let's not include that. (laughs) You really know how to bring down a podcast, Dan. (laughs) You want to get it down? I'm going to tell you a sad story now about automation.